The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Lever Time, episode four. This is the show where we try to talk about politics without losing our goddamn minds. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about Republicans' favorite hobby horse, cutting entitlement programs, and how a defeat in the midterm elections might lead the Biden administration into joining them. Then we'll be joined by the Lever's Andrew Perez to discuss his amazing new story, about how after Joe Manchin blocked a Medicare expansion in his home state of West Virginia, a free medical clinic popped up to provide health services for the state's low-income residents. Andrew actually traveled to West Virginia to report on that clinic. Also, The Lever's Julia Rock reports on some successful climate organizing campaigns in New York, but also about how Democrats in that state legislature recently killed a major renewable energy bill. What a surprise. And this week, our paid subscribers will get to hear a bonus segment reviewing the huge elections in Latin America and France, elections where the left actually won big. A reminder for our free listeners to head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber, giving you access to our premium podcast feed, which includes those bonus segments, plus much more. As always, I'm joined here uh, by producer Frank. What's up, Frank? Not much, David. I'm I'm feeling actually pretty good today uh, about the show, about the state of things. Uh, you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of heavy topics, but there's there seems to be a silver lining in all of the stuff that we're talking about, which, you know, we don't get those that often. So I feel pretty good. No, there is some good news in, in this. And I think that I, I mentioned the Latin American ele- election results and how they revolved around climate change is actually it's a, a particularly good piece of news, considering all the bad climate news about what's going on in the actual environment right now. So that's that's actually I'm I'm psyched to get to that. It's it's a really really uh, important set of stories. And you're right. I mean, I cling to any shred of good news, uh, even if it's uh, far outside of our own country. So I, I'm I'm like we're in a good news drought. So I'm thirsty for good news. Yeah, the slightest the slightest drop of good news feels like uh, I'm I'm bathing in an oasis right now. <laughs> exactly. Now, before we get to that good news, I, I think we should f- have to first go to some not so good news. Um, today's first story, we're going to be talking about so-called entitlement programs. During a debate with Senator Bernie Sanders last week, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham signaled that Republicans are hoping that the Biden administration works with them after the midterm elections to try to cut Social Security and Medicare. That's what Graham telegraphed. Now, we've all heard some version of this before. It's literally one of the very few things that the Republican Party still does well. They are still very good at cutting social programs that benefit the poorest and most vulnerable in our society. I mean, they're so good at it, they've successfully rebranded the positive term social welfare into the vulgar terms 
entitlement programs. The idea is that how dare lazy moochers feel entitled to basic services like healthcare and making sure seniors don't live and die in poverty. You know what, David? I learned once that before Social Security, three quarters of American seniors lived in poverty. That's a real fact about life in America before Social Security. And I will never, ever forget that. It's it's, it's incredible. And, and there are similar stats about seniors and access to medical care before Medicare. And yet every couple of years, it, Congress, uh, the media, uh, the, the center of the uh, political debate is about whether Social Security and Medicare, two of the most popular programs in the history of the country, whether they need to be cut. And the Democrats have fetishized cutting Social Security and Medicare uh, since the Clinton administration. There have been these commissions where Democrats, Democratic politicians who want to look uh, tough, who want to show themselves to be supposedly courageous statesmen who can uh, who can. Uh, disconnect from the Democratic Party's base, who can shove it to the Democratic Party's base, they tout themselves as being willing to have tough discussions about cutting Social Security and Medicare, when in fact what they should be doing and what the public supports is an expansion of those programs. To help break down all of this and what happened this week and what it may signal for after the midterm elections, I'm now joined by Alex Lawson. He's the executive director of Social Security Works. It's an organization working to address the retirement income crisis by protecting and expanding the social security system. Hey, Alex, what's up? Hello, how are you? Uh, you know, things seem pretty dark right now. Uh, and one of the things that seems pretty dark is the prospect for cuts to social security and Medicare. Um, last week, Lindsey Graham had this to say about what the Republicans would try to do if they win the midterms. So entitlement reform is a must for us to not become Greece. Alex, I know we've all heard this before, but how concerned should we be that if Republicans take control after the midterms, that they'll actually do so-called entitlement reform, which of course is code for cutting Social Security and Medicare? How real do you think that is? It's always real. Um, they just never stop coming for our Social Security, our Medicare, um, our earned benefits. It was sort of surprising that Lindsey Graham um, wanted to just come out and say it. They, they usually uh, pretend that they don't want to do that and then hide behind some sort of, uh, you know, bipartisan commission like uh, the one that Senator Romney has proposed. In the Obama era, it was uh, the Bull Simpson Commission, the BS Commission. Um, that's all very real. I think I might be more optimistic than you or have some, some uh, good news. I think we're better prepared to fight against that uh, than we were when President Obama uh, pivoted to an austerity agenda after the midterms in 2010. Um, a lot has changed since then on the makeup of uh, the Democratic caucus uh, and especially on the momentum behind uh, expanding Social Security benefits that we're seeing from the Democrats, um, Representative John Larson in the House, 
uh, and Senator Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, others in the Senate. Um, so I, they're going to try for sure. That's what they always do. And there are factions within the Democratic Party uh, who fully support things like the the Bull Simpson Commission. I mean, I, I know you know uh, the former uh, executive director of the commission is in the Biden White House. Bruce yeah, well, let's, Reed. Just, let's just stop there for a second, because that, that was the thing that I, I sort of was half encouraged by and half kind of grossed out by, which is this. Lindsey Graham comes out and says this entitlement reform is a must. And the DNC, the DSCC, or the Democratic Party's apparatus expresses outrage. How dare Lindsey Graham say this? And this is proof that if the Republicans try to win, if they win the election, they're going to try to cut Social Security and Medicare. And to my mind, Lindsey Graham just said what the Obama administration, and let me rephrase that, the Obama-Biden administration said uh, 10, 11, 12 years ago uh, when the Republicans took over that they wanted to move to entitlement reform. In other words, what Lindsey Graham said 10, 11, 12 years ago was Democratic Party orthodoxy. So I guess I would ask you how much of a change you think there has been or is that just a short term tactic, this this expression of outrage? Is it just a short term election tactic to kind of pretend that's what the Democrats are outraged about when, in fact, it's likely that Joe Biden will reach out to Republicans if the Republicans win the election and try to do another commission to cut those programs? So I think it's a really important question and and one that, you know, we should be asking. Uh, I think that what where we are right now is is fundamentally different than where we are, where we were in 2010. Uh, I think that let's just go into a second of what it is that we're talking about, like what Democrats are like supportive of or like formerly uh, the establishment position was a so-called grand bargain, right? So the Democrats actually weren't ever for cutting Social Security benefits. They accepted cuts to Social Security in exchange for increased taxes on the rich. And the idea is... You get the two parties behind closed doors, unaccountable to their voters, and they make a deal, the so-called grand bargain. Uh, and, you know, if you talk to establishment Dems, they at the time they would, you know, swear up and down that, you know, it's not them who wants to cut Social Security. It's the it's the Republicans who want to cut Social Security. Uh, and that in and of itself is true. But what we were like, we, we and what we exposed, Social Security Works, we were formed to defeat the BS Commission, which, as you know, David, was just one of like a series of them. After we defeated the BS Commission, you know, they'd come out with another one and another one and another one. Um, and we had to defeat all of these fast track attempts uh, at the so-called grand bargain. And there were little pieces that got through that did real harm. Uh, and also it ate up the entire rest of the Obama White House, right? Six years of these uh, fake cliffs and um, crises. And all of it was focused on 
getting the so-called grand bargain. Right. And my fear is my fear is that Joe Biden is somebody who doesn't believe very deeply in much of anything, but he does believe in a few things pretty deeply. And I look at Joe Biden's career and I may be in the you know top 99th percentile of people who know, who actually truly know Joe Biden's career, have reported deeply on it. And he has, he has up until the 2020 election, he has portrayed himself as a Democrat who is willing to uh, gore sacred cows in his own party, a Democrat who's tough enough to stand up to his party's base and push things like cutting Social Security. And my fear is that after an election shellacking uh, like there was in 2010, if there's another one in 2022, the old Joe Biden. That Joe Biden, not the Joe Biden of 2020, but the Joe Biden who spent most of his adult life pushing for Social Security and Medicare cuts, freezing funding, giving Senate floor speeches, uh, touting himself as being a, a great hero for being willing to, to, to talk about so-called entitlement reform, that that old Joe Biden will be back. Is that, is that a ridiculous fear? It's not at all. The, the optimism I have is not in Joe Biden per se. Um, I think that what Joe Biden is, is one of the best um, homing pigeons or beacons of where the center of the Democratic Party is at any one time. He puts his finger in the air and finds it. So as you noted, like if you go through his speeches, you'll find things that from today you're like, I cannot believe that he was advocating for that. But it, it's a good friend of mine, Melissa Byrne, uh, always points out she fights to cancel uh, all student debt. One of her like amazing sort of things is she's like, everyone should go and just watch clips of Democrats from the 1990s to truly understand how terrible they were, right? That the party was <laughs> absolutely in an entirely different place than they are today. And it's not saying like, oh, so therefore we won. But it is to recognize that we have shifted the landscape incredibly to the left. Uh, and I do think that Joe Biden recognizes that. Uh, but more importantly, I think that even if he does go for it and, and the wheels of elite establishment DC are entirely what you said, that uh, uh, the the most dangerous setup for Social Security uh, is a Democratic presidency that loses the House and the Senate and then is left with the Republicans being able to hold the debt ceiling against him, right? Or all of the levers that they use to, to create these crises. Uh, and it's in that setup uh, that it is most likely to yield something like a grand bargain. But I, I know you remember this. You're one of the few who like reported on it. You remember that the only person, it was me with a camera before live streaming was like a big deal. I stood in front of the closed door of the BS commission that they hid in the Congress and just live streamed the closed door. Uh, until, you know, the mainstream media, the New York Times, you know, like picked it up. Like the weirdest thing going around D.C. is these two hour live streams of a closed door. And, and um, I feel like I feel like that is 
Joe Biden's dream, that Joe Biden has in his mind that that the great good old days of Washington was the days when we could all get into a smoky back room, close the door, shut the press out, shut the, you know, the, the, the public out and come come up with a great deal, a these grand bargains, these so-called grand bargains uh, that give something to one party, give another thing to the other party, and they all have to go out and lock arms and basically tell the public that the public is screwed. I feel like Joe Biden thinks that that was the good old days. And in my view, that was not the good old days. Uh, that was pr- bad. I mean, certainly some things can come out of it that are okay from a, from a process. But it's in general, that is not a, a, a great process. So how do we prevent that, that, that dream, aka that nightmare, from happening? happening if the Republicans win. So I think, A, we have a much bigger apparatus on the outside. So organizations are much more, first of all, there's, they don't buy it, right? So like the beginning of those smoky backroom deals, there has to be people uh, saying and, uh, you know, believing like, oh, no, they're not talking about cutting Social Security in there. Uh, they that's what they kept saying to us during the BS commission. Uh, and they're like, you don't know what they're talking about in there. And I'm like, I know that's the exact problem. We don't know what they're talking about. But I can and to be clear, you, that is what they pushed. That is what exactly. they ultimately came out with, which was Social Security cuts. And you remember that what blew it up was Alan Simpson came out. He was annoyed with that New York Times article. And he gave me an impromptu eight minute uh, swear filled diatribe against me where he's like, Hell yeah, we're talking about cutting Social Security in there. That's what grownups do, you young whippersnapper. Um, it was, and you know, it blew it up because now it's like that's what this is about. We don't even need to go through that. As soon as something is impaneled, um, I'll have hundreds of activists coming to DC outside the room with me, and sort of more importantly, in the way that you know it would look. If the Democrats lose in the House, especially the losses come from the right side of the party first. Right. So like in in an enormous wave, it could take out like, you know, a whole bunch of everybody. Uh, But in uh, anything other than an enormous, enormous wave, the losses are going to come from the right side of the party. The, The caucus would become smaller, lose the majority, but much more progressive. Uh, And I think that our champions in the House, um, you know, I can name a a bunch of them. John Larson, who, who's not like a CPC firebrand, but he would definitely uh, be outside the room with the activists, right? But of course, like Pramila Jayapal and AOC and Cori Bush, who all can bring a level of, um, communications firepower that we just didn't have when we defeated the Bull Simpson Commission. Uh, and that's just on the left, because I also think an important part of this is that the on the right, I don't think that they're, you know, like the the MAGA caucus or the crazy side of the right wing. I don't think that they would be into this either. So, well, that's a good that's a good point. I want to talk a little bit about that very quickly, which is that I do sense that the Republican Party is also somewhat divided in a way that they weren't before, which is to say that I think 10, 15 years ago, the Republican Party was a purely 
uh, almost purely a country club Republican party, uh, a, a Republican party of business and financial elites uh, who uh, didn't even pretend to care about the working class of this country. I think now the Republican brand is much different. I think the Republican brand is constantly portraying itself, the Republican leadership is constantly portraying itself as more in touch with the working class uh, than the Democratic uh, leadership. Now, I think obviously the Republican uh, Republican leaders are very closely connected to to the biggest of big money donors. Uh, I, I think it's more brand, their working class idea, the idea that their working class party is more of a brand than actual reality. But it is to say that I do wonder, where do the MAGA Republicans, uh, that branch of the Republican Party, where does that branch of the Republican Party come down on cutting uh, direct payments to to seniors, right? I mean, it was Donald Trump who proposed the PPP program. It was Donald Trump who proposed a bunch of programs that were just about getting money out to regular people. Uh, and I'm not touting that, but I'm saying that is a reality of Republican politics now. Where do you sense the Republican Party is on the idea of a so-called grand bargain? So I think it's um, there are factions within the Republican Party. So I don't think you can say uh, with uh, clarity where the Republicans are. You can say exactly where Mitch McConnell is, right? Like that dude wants to destroy it. Um, where Rick Scott is, that guy wants to destroy it. I also think they're, you know, where um, most of the House Republicans are, they're going to do what their donors want. In the sort of Trump land, it gets more complicated because you remember Donald Trump, he knew the political power of Social Security. He was the Republican who got on stage and pointed at the other Republicans and said, they're all going to come cut your Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. I'm not. That's the bit he ran against the other Republicans on protecting uh, seniors, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, protecting everybody's. Um, but that really gives uh, like the Trump land Republicans. There's two things. One, uh, we would be able to pressure them uh, and, you know, that we would hold up. Uh, Donald Trump. Now, in in fairness, uh, because it's obvious that this would happen, Donald Trump then, you know, turned right around in power and worked to undermine and destroy Social Security. He just came at it um, through, uh, you know, from the side and then lied about what he was doing. Uh, but also the Trump land are not like into just the idea of working with the Democrats for a so-called grand bargain or anything, right? Like that ethos is not in the Trump land. And I, I don't know what is except for like, you know, white nationalism, a bunch of chaos. Right. That's a really good point that that, that Donald Trump, you know, even uh, being part of that generation that kind of idealizes this, you know, this politics of Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, Donald Trump and his movement don't seem at all interested in you know, they don't fetishize bipartisanship. They don't fetishize comedy uh, and, and working together. 
uh, in the way that Joe Biden and the Democrats constantly fetishize the idea of coming up with a grand bargain, press conferences where both parties are, are, are present. I feel like Joe Biden wakes up in the morning and goes to sleep at night dreaming of having a press conference with Mitch McConnell where they're locking arms uh, to cut Social Security and Medicare and show that the government can work in a bipartisan way. I mean, in my view, I don't care what's partisan or bipartisan. I don't give a shit about that. The only thing I give a shit about is the end result. What is the end result of the policy? So that gets to the final question here, which is what kind of organizing are you doing? Is Social Security Works doing now in anticipation of this? What can people who are hearing this podcast do if they're worried about their social security benefits after a Republican win in the midterms, if that happens. So I think the most important thing that happened between 2010 and today uh, is it started with Senator Tom Harkin and uh, and the torch has been carried uh, from there. As I noted before, we're no longer just fighting against cuts. Um, the outside, right? So real people are fighting to expand benefits. And the Democratic Party, for the, the vast majority of them, have come along with that. Uh, so fighting to expand Social Security is the best way to protect against cutting Social Security. And so anything that moves that ball forward, and so this is the actual answer is right here, John Larson's bill in the House has 202 co-sponsors on it. It is that that that's, you know, just inches away from being able to pass with just original co-sponsors. We need to get that bill to a vote uh, and its leadership. It's Speaker Pelosi who's standing in between that bill and a vote. But we are making progress to get that bill, what's called marked up uh, in ways and means. And that would move it on to where we could get a floor vote on uh, expanding Social Security. That's the number one way we can protect Social Security is make these politicians vote on it in the sunlight. Never let them go into that back room. Put them on the record. And once the Democrats are voting to expand Social Security, it's almost impossible for them, not impossible, but almost impossible for them to turn around and you know, work to compromise with uh, cutting Social Security. I mean, look, I certainly agree that having a vote right now, ASAP, to at least get as many Democrats on record as possible on expanding Social Security is is incredibly important. Uh, And you've laid out the politics of this. I mean, you've got Joe Biden as president who's pushed for uh, so-called entitlement reforms for most of his adult life. The Executive director of the Simpson-Bowles Commission that tried to cut Social Security is now working in the White House. You've got a a current House speaker who says all sorts of nice things about Pete Peterson, the billionaire who has funded the movement to cut Social Security. So all of this is in play. And I completely agree with you that at least getting these politicians on record uh, in a vote – to see where they stand on expanding Social Security. By the way, a very popular idea when you look at polls. So popular, Right. That getting them on record is hugely important. Uh, Very quickly, Alex, where can folks find your work to know how to engage? Uh, You can find us at socialsecurityworks.org or on Facebook. Just search Social Security Works on uh, Twitter, um, SS Works. um, And 
Yeah, it's it's the moment. It's the moment to get involved. And we should use the fact that it's so popular and that uh, Democrats are scrambling for a political lifeline. And we're like, this is it. This is the most popular policy you could go for. Run on it. Uh, and, you know, people are picking up what we're putting down there. So if we can increase the volume, it is entirely possible that we get a vote before November on expanding Social Security and show people Republicans want to cut Social Security and Democrats want to expand Social Security. And that's a fight that every Democrat should want to take because the people are soundly on the side of the Democrats in that in that showdown. Alex Lawson, thanks so much. Thanks, David. Okay, it's time to get to our lever story for this week. So last year, Joe Manchin, a.k.a. Senator Cole from West Virginia, he helped block a Medicare expansion, which would have provided additional health services to thousands and thousands of seniors in his state, including vision and dental care. As a result, West Virginia has seen some of the worst health outcomes in the entire country. Now, an organization providing free healthcare services to low-income residents across the country has set up shop in West Virginia. The Lever's Andrew Perez traveled to Charleston, West Virginia, to report on one of these pop-up medical clinics and the incredible work they're doing right in Joe Manchin's backyard. Andrew, thanks for being here. Thanks for chatting with us about this. Absolutely. Thanks for sending me there. Yeah, thanks. Thank thank our readers, our our paying subscribers for funding uh, the kind of journalism we do to make a trip like that uh, possible. So again, this comes after West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin helped kill that Medicare expansion last year that would have benefited uh, some of the folks that you uh, visited with down in in West Virginia. The clinic you attended was held by uh, the Remote Area Medical, otherwise known as RAM. Um, Generally speaking, let's start out with with asking, what exactly is a RAM clinic and why is there one in West Virginia right now? Sure. Um, So RAM holds uh, free medical clinics, um, usually two or three day events all over the country um, where people can come and get medical, dental, vision services uh, at no cost. Um, And, you know, services kind of vary. Sometimes they're only offering dental because that's the most popular service. Um, But, you know, actually in in West Virginia, they were um, patients could only actually get choose dental or vision because they were in uh, really in demand. Um, And anyway, RAM has been holding this clinic in West Virginia um, annually, though not during uh, not not at the start of covid. um, and, and they've been holding it in West Virginia because they know that there's a need and um, a local community health group invited them. Um, they've been partnering with West Virginia Health right there um, since 2017 after the state saw um, some historic flooding. When was the RAM program first created? How are they funded? Um, so RAM was first created in 1985, um, and it was initially designed to help provide uh, medical services in remote uh, locations overseas, including in the Amazon rainforest. They quickly started receiving requests to hold clinics here in the U.S. And, you know, as far as I can tell, that's what most of their work is now. Um, and so they, they um, you know, rely on individual donations, foundation donations, and some corporate partnerships. Um, the truth is, though, they're, they're pretty small. They, they raised a little more than $6 million in 2020. Um, so they have a small staff at these events, and they rely in large part on volunteers, including volunteer medical professionals, um, you know, physicians, dentists, uh, uh, 
um, eye doctors. Um, and, you know, they do not go everywhere. They, they, they're only picking where they go based on invitations from local community groups that are then helping bring in volunteers and helping bring in doctors and medical professionals, too. So you mentioned in the piece that the clinic was set up only a few miles from Joe Manchin's riverfront home. Give us a little detail about Manchin's role in blocking uh, his constituents, the people that you met on this trip. A a little detail about what Manchin did to block them from accessing uh, more medical services and healthcare. Um, well, so Manchin last year blocked um, the Build Back Better bill, the, the you know President Joe Biden's agenda bill, um, and he he'd already kind of worked to significantly scale it down. But one of one of his chief problems with the bill, um, one of the main sticking points for Manchin was that it um, he opposed expanding Medicare to include dental and, and vision benefits for seniors, arguing that we just can't afford it, that the government can't afford that, um, and you know his stance was a big giant victory for the private health insurance industry, which makes huge profits off of um, privatized Medicare Advantage plans. So Medicare doesn't um, include dental and vision benefits. Uh, Medicare Advantage plans generally do include those benefits, but they're usually really thin. They're they're kind of worthless. Um, and so the benefits that are proposed that were proposed by Democrats would have been an upgrade over what insurers currently offer. And um, what that meant was that, you know, some people might then choose to stick with Medicare instead of the private plans. Like, why would you go privatized if you can get better coverage just through Medicare? It would have also meant that insurers would have to spend some money to keep up with the new benefits. Um, So they opposed the plan and basically demanded that Congress pay them more money to help cover the cost of providing services that they already kind of supposedly do. Um, and it's it's why they ran a bunch of ads in West Virginia and including in Arizona. But in West Virginia, you know, they they ran a lot of uh, ads thanking Manchin for protecting the, the Medicare Advantage program, saying that seniors rely on Medicare Advantage. It was it was a really, you know, and actually our, our, our colleague Julia Rock did a did a report on that whole uh, industry spending spree. And it was really, really dirty. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Lever Time. All right, look, if you're listening to this show, you know Soft when you see it. Soft is a Democratic House member pledging to be for a $15 minimum wage and then immediately backing down. Soft is a Democratic senator pledging to tax billionaires and then betraying the promise. Soft is Joe Biden saying he supports unions and then backing down to lobbyists. But even the Democrats in Washington aren't as soft as Sheets and Giggles eucalyptus sheets. Sheets and Giggles should be the place you get your sheets, because they're awesome. They're unlike anything you've ever tried. They're naturally softer than even the best cotton, and they're temperature regulating. They keep hot sleepers cool and cold sleepers warm, even in the same bed. This is particularly important in places like where I live, Colorado, and where the temperature fluctuates all over the place. The cool thing is that Colin, the founder of Sheets and Giggles, is mission-driven. He's a guy right here in my hometown of Denver who's been a longtime reader of the Lever's journalism. He's been pushing Colorado to enact a public health insurance option. And he's making sure Sheets and Giggles products are made sustainably and ship in zero plastic packaging. Let me give you an example. Their sheets use 96% less water than cotton, 30% less energy than cotton to make them. For comparison, a single set of polyester sheets can leach 10 million microplastic fibers into the waterways every year, just through the laundry. So look, if you want to support a business that supports our journalism and is values-driven, 
Sheets and Giggles is for you. Go to sheetsgiggles.com slash lever. That's sheetsgiggles.com slash lever for a 15% discount and get yourself set up today. Their sheets are softer than the Biden administration, and you're helping support a great company that's making our journalism possible. Welcome back. I'm here with The Lever's Andrew Perez. We're discussing his recent piece for The Lever about the Ram Medical Clinics and his trip to Joe Manchin's backyard. He went to West Virginia to report on the healthcare situation in that state after Joe Manchin uh, has blocked an expansion of Medicare, as, uh, dental and vision and the like. Uh, while you were at the clinic reporting this, you spent a lot of your time near the dental services area in specific which you report is by far the RAM clinic's most sought after services. Why is that? Um, so RAM's clinic manager told me that 65% of patients generally come to these events for dental with vision being second. Um, m- medical is the smallest by far. And, you know, part of that's probably like you're not going to these clinics to get surgeries, right? Like they're kind of identifying problems. Maybe they'll give you prescriptions on the medical side. Um, but the real driver is just that a lot of people do not have access to dental care. Um, part of that's like dental care is expensive. Um, some some areas of the country are are called dental deserts where where people don't have really any option to to get professional dental care, including in a lot of rural areas. You know, dentists are not setting up shop in in areas that are that are you know overwhelmingly poor or that just don't have very few people. It's just it's they just don't do it. Um, so people's dental issues tend to pile up and get uh, much more severe. Um, and you know, there's the cost issue. Dental care is expensive, and if you need dental services, it's going to cost you money, um, even if you have insurance outside of like a traditional you know annual cleaning. Um, so Medicare doesn't cover dental. Medicaid plans usually only cover extractions or emergencies. Um, private dental insurance plans and the medical uh, me- Medicare Advantage plans that do cover dental, um, your plan is going to involve significant cost sharing and, and might also have an annual maximum um, or a cap of $1,000, $2,000, maybe more, where you're responsible for everything after. I want to play some excerpts of some audio to really illustrate the dental crisis that you encountered down in West Virginia. Here's one clip of you talking to a man named Charles Combs, who was there to have several teeth extracted. I've been doing them myself. <laughs> You've been pulling out your own teeth? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. knocking them out with a hammer. What? In a, in a knocker. I'm sorry. Um, how long has that been going on? Mm. Okay. They're in all those bad. Um, how long, or like how long has it been since you've had dental care? Mm, yeah, when I had this last and pulled, it cost me $400. Okay. That's, that's too bad. Then there was another person you encountered named Robert, uh, who had this to say about the dental situation there. Uh, I've seen a couple months ago to an oral surgeon have my teeth removed. They're all bad. And, and they want $3,000 to remove them. And I'm on disability social security and I don't have $3,000. And one of my tooth that's broken in the back and it's cutting my jaw, side of my jaw really bad. And, and, and this is perfect for me to, I mean, to get that tooth removed. Without 
an opportunity like this, what would you have done to take care of your dental needs? I, I wasn't much I could do. I mean, I, I, I nothing I really could do. You know, uh, I have no way of raking up that kind of money. You know, no way. With, uh, bills and rent and uh, car insurance, food, gasoline. Uh, there's nothing there to, to save it. What I make or not. And, uh, I, I couldn't afford it. I can't save money. I heard every day, my teeth hurt every day what I got left. Andrew, my question to you is what was it like reporting on this? What do you think people outside of West Virginia or who aren't experiencing this uh, don't understand about the depths of this uh, healthcare crisis in general and the dental crisis in specific? Well, so I knew that some some patients at the this clinic were going to be living in like serious distress. Like I, I definitely knew that going in. Um, I was not ready for someone to tell me that they were removing their own teeth with a hammer. Um, I just can't imagine that. I, I couldn't have imagined that going in. Um, but you know, I think so. So what you're hear from Charles, like that, that was I thought pretty stunning. No one on on Earth should be forced to 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 live like that. Um, you know, let alone in the wealthiest country on Earth. Um, I think you know what what Robert says really illustrates the the failure of like this the our, our social safety net. Um, you know, he he's on disability social security and he needs all of his teeth out, and he has you know, if not for this clinic, no option for doing it, which which means that he lives in chronic pain. Um, you know, he, he he was told that it would it would take three thousand dollars to remove his teeth. Um, and he he absolutely needed one out immediately because he, he said it was broken and it's cutting his jaw. Um, and so it's it, you know, I, I think what it shows is that people are, um, you know, living in, in really, really serious distress. Um, you know, might be getting some help from the government, but really not enough um, and not covering what what are what are essential services too, right? Like so much of our our, our um, healthcare system treats, you know, teeth and vision as if it's like just completely detached from people's health. And it's insane. And it has it has a huge trickle down effect that just um, puts people in, in absolute misery and pain until um, uh, until hopefully they they end up at a RAM clinic, best case scenario. I mean, it's, it is incredible that Medicare and the, the way Medicare is written, uh, apparently the eyes and the teeth are not part of the human body. I mean, it's, it's just, it's it's so freaking dark to think about that, that the law was kind of written in that way to pretend parts of the body are not parts of your body. I, I want to end on, on a kind of a positive note in the sense of what the RAM clinic folks are doing. Uh, there's audio from a, a patient named Melina uh, that you met who had this to say about the healthcare services that she was able to get through this clinic. Well, everyone was kind to everyone. It, I just have never seen people treat indigent people in particular with as much care and regard and decency. They just treated us like we were valuable human beings and deserved good care. And I had chosen the dental and I was scared. I was just so scared. And they started, they even had a portable x-ray machine. They could x-ray my mouth on site so that they could do it and they just 
it was painless for a tooth extraction. The way they handled my job, the way they cared whether it hurt, everything they did, it was like a family member was concerned about my comfort and my well-being. And they made it almost pleasant, as, as strange as a word, you know, that it is for, for a dental procedure. Uh, and here is another clip of a Ram Clinic worker named Poppy talking to Melina. I want to let you know that you matter. Everyone matters. We care about you. We are grateful that you have trusted in us to, to come into your life and to do the smallest thing. I mean, we all need medical care. The comment about being like the indigent aren't cared for. As long as we wear khaki, <laughs> as, as long as um, we can load up a truck and get on the road, we are here. We care about you. You've proven it. You're, you're part of the family. <laughs> well, I tell you what, when I get everything else fixed, I'm coming back to volunteer. <laughs> Andrew, it really seems like the folks you talk to just are not used to getting any kind of basic medical care at all to the point where they're surprised to be getting decent medical care. I mean, is that was that the basic attitude down there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think some some people were walking in being like, I don't really know what this is, right? Like they they they, they kind of had no idea what it was. Um, but, you know, I think Molina really um, really kind of framed w- w- what the what the real issue is here, which is that like. People who are are living in poverty are are yeah really not used to being treated as human. They're they're used to being treated as a as a dollar sign and and one that does that you know is not too substantial. Um, so you know I think um, in, in and I was you know listening to this audio again I was like really really encouraged by the stuff that Poppy was saying to Molina. Um, you know just just making clear that like you you know you are you know, human, you matter. Um, and, and not only do you matter, but you're part of our family. And like, you know, I think, I think you, like you saw that there, um, that, that people really, really did appreciate, um, the efforts of, of this clinic. Andrew, great work on this story. This is the kind of on the ground investigative reporting that is funded, as I said, by our paid subscribers. So if you're interested in supporting independent journalism like this, if you're listening to this podcast and you like what you heard, head over to levernews.com to become a subscriber to help us do more. Andrew, great work. Thanks for thanks for doing it. Thank you. Okay, for our final segment today, in the wake of the Democratic Party recently killing a renewable energy bill in the New York State Legislature, we'll be sharing an interview here between the Levers' Julia Rock and New York climate organizer Pete Sikora. Pete's an organizer whose practical tactics have proven very effective, including a campaign which successfully banned gas pipelines in new building constructions in New York City. Julia spoke with Pete about what happened recently in New York's Democratic legislature, as well as the realities of climate change organizing in the Big Apple. Okay, Pete, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. 
Uh, so you you work with the New York advocacy group, New York Communities for Change, where you're one of the campaign directors. Uh, can you tell us just a bit about how you got involved in New York Communities for Change and what got you into climate organizing specifically? Sure. Well, NYCC is uh, organizing in Black and Latino communities to fight for economic, social, and climate justice. And um, I was working uh, as a political and mobilization coordinator for a labor union uh, several years ago when I got really freaked out about climate change uh, after reading stuff by Bill McKibben. It's all extremely scary. And it was a wake up call for me that I should start working on uh, this issue. I think, you know, it's probably true for a lot of our listeners that climate change is, you know, terrifying. It's a top priority. And yet, it feels just insurmountable. But but you seem to have yeah. uh, a very sort of pragmatic nuts and bolts approach to climate organizing um, that's been very effective. Can you can you lay out sort of what that organizing strategy is? Well, that's so nice of you to say. I mean, we are uh, what we're trying to do here is uh, run hard hitting multiracial organizing campaigns for very specific objectives that are big goals that some decision maker, an elected official, a corporation uh, can do. So uh, we're trying to put pressure from a multiracial base on a targeted elected official uh, to do the right thing. And so that's what we're trying to do. And we're using a mix of tactics from lobbying to direct action, protests, all of those things to make uh, that target feel pressure to do the right thing. Got it. And I think um, one thing you've sort of tweeted and, and written and spoken pretty extensively about is that that this is a somewhat unique approach in the U.S. climate organizing landscape right now, or at least a lot of the big, you know, national as well as New York-based climate groups aren't aren't really uh, willing to sort of criticize Democrats, take an adversarial tack. Uh, can, can you elaborate on that a bit? Well, you know, there's like in climate land, uh, you know, I discovered early on, there's like a lot of like technology and white papers and uh, nerdy policy talk. And like, I enjoy that stuff too. But the really important thing here is to win tangible objectives and force elected officials to do that. And so um, in New York, this is a very blue state. It's a super blue city. And so what we have to do is to get Democrats to live up to their rhetoric on these issues and actually pass the kind of transformational policies that slash pollution and create good jobs. And that's we're aiming for a Green New Deal here, but that's a lot of very tangible items to win. Got it. Well, and, and so one great specific example is the the gas free buildings campaign in New York City, um, oh, which yeah, now yeah. is a campaign that that you're working on at the state level. Um, can you talk a little bit about how how you won the the gas ban in new buildings in New York City and uh, sort of what those efforts look like at the state level now? Sure. Um, well, you know, in um, on the West Coast, starting in Berkeley, uh, a few of the municipalities took this transformational step of just ending gas use in newly constructed buildings. No more oil, no more gas for those boilers and those furnaces. Instead, buildings are going to be powered uh, and heated and cooled uh, with heat pumps and energy efficiency. And that's now practical and cost effective. So we saw that as a really good idea for New York City, which is a really big place that uses about 5% of the gas burned in buildings nationwide. Wow. So we wanted to pass that as a policy. And so um, that cleans up our air, it fights climate change, and it creates good jobs in clean energy in New York City. So to win that, we had to overcome the opposition of the oil and gas industry and the real estate industry. And so to do that, 
we formed uh, an effective coalition campaign with a few different groups to bring pressure from all across the city on the city council speaker to pass the legislation. And and why was the city council speaker sort of the target in that campaign? You know, that's such a great question. I think for a lot of activists, you have to the first thing you have to do is think about, well, who what am I trying to get and who is the decision maker on this issue? Um, oftentimes you could say, well, the city should do X or the, the federal government should do Y, but really you've got to talk about a specific person who is democratically accountable in our system. And the Speaker uh, of the City Council controls legislation moving through the New York City Council. And the law starts in the City Council and the City Council has the power to pass laws. So it can be the driving force and the Speaker is the most important figure within the City Council. So we ran a campaign to get Speaker Corey Johnson to move this legislation. And to his credit, he did. And, it, you know, it seems like in, in, in New York City and, and maybe especially at the state level where, where now you're working to pass a gas ban statewide, uh, you're, you're sort of trying to get the ear of lawmakers that, you know, maybe the real estate industry and the fossil fuel industry are also trying to win over. Uh, so w- yeah. what does it mean to sort of... Um, you know, divorce divorce these lawmakers from from their donors and and get them to deliver on you know big popular policies. You know, you have to bring bone crushing political pressure uh, to win. Um, you gotta just crush here, and <laughs> so in order to do that, right, you have to mobilize enough um, grassroots pressure um, on the targets to make them feel like this is a thing that they should do. Um, you know, it's. We're all very keen to be right about the issues, and it's incredibly important to push policy that is the right policy. But at the end of the day, you don't win because you're making a good argument or you're morally righteous. You win because you assemble the political power to then go over the top on the opposition, which in all of these cases ends up being deep-pocketed corporate special interests who just want to preserve the status quo. So you have to overcome that opposition. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do, but it's a very doable thing to do if you get with a bunch of groups and a bunch of activists and run an effective campaign. So that's what we encourage people to do to win on these issues and take chunks of the problem of climate change, pass the policies that are needed to solve it. And if we're doing that worldwide, that's how we're going to overcome this problem. And in the process, build a fairer and more just society. One thing that was really striking to me about the the gas ban campaign, and I think about uh, many New York communities for change campaigns. I I remember uh, I was standing in front of my laundromat a few months ago and saw some massive march come down the middle of the street that I think New York communities for change had helped organize regarding rent hikes. But how do you get that much people power behind something like you know banning gas in new buildings? That's you know that is the key, right? How do you mobilize people? First, I want to say. You don't need to mobilize like 20% of society or 50% of society or 100% of society, right? Like people have this stereotype of movements as like this all-encompassing thing that everybody must be part of, you know, the civil rights movement, you know, things like that. But but in fact, the number of people actually taking action in these movements is vanishingly small as a percentage of the total population. You know, we need a small proportion of people to actualize the otherwise inchoate public opinion that won't translate into policy unless there's people actually pressing. And so that number of people needs to be there, but it doesn't necessarily need to be thousands in a city of New York. It can be hundreds. And that's what it was for the gas ban campaign. So our organization has a base of volunteers 
so do the other organizations that we worked with on that campaign. And together, we mobilized our membership bases to events and activities and to lobby. And lots of people came out, but it wasn't thousands of people. It was hundreds of people. So that's the kind of scale to win a big campaign in New York City that you need. And so if you are in a smaller place than New York City, dozens of people ought to be enough. In, in a bigger place, thousands of people are necessary. So, But I do want to stress one other thing, which is that in a multiracial place like New York City, it's not enough to just have sort of white progressives out there arguing for something. And look, I'm a white progressive. I, I think that's a great thing, right? Like white people should do the right thing. However, to win in a multiracial place like New York City, you have to build a coalition uh, to be to maximize effectiveness. So what we do is we combine our base at New York Communities for Change in communities of color with predominantly white progressives who are active on climate and then combine those bases to push a specific target. And in a blue city or in a blue state, that combination of white progressives and communities of color is a dominating political coalition. So if you can actualize that political coalition for a specific objective on an ambitious politician who wants to remain in office or move to a higher position, that's how you can win. And the same thing, by the way, applies to corporate campaigns. Got it. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's a, a striking vision for organizing. Um, you've, you've written extensively about how Democrats in New York love to, you know, tout their climate plans, their their commitment to tackling the climate crisis without much follow through. Um, a, a member of yeah. New York's Climate Action Council went so far as to say, we're good in New York at writing press releases, but we're a little less perfected at the art of implementation. That sounds depressingly similar <laughs> yeah. to the Biden administration, who loves to tell us about the amazing things they're going to do, but have done very little. Uh, you know, do you think this is an establishment Democrat problem? Is there something unique in New York that's halting progress? What's going on here? I think it's the same in almost everywhere, local, state, federal. Um, on the one hand, we have the Republicans who are ruthlessly marching to destroy progress and wreck civil society, take us backwards on a range of issues. And on the other hand, we have the Democrats who left to their own devices sort of tread water and don't really do a whole lot in one direction or another. Um, so it's up to us as the people to actually mobilize the pressure to, to win. And in blue places like New York, the federal government right now, the Democrats are in charge. So they're the ones to pressure. Um, you know, the kind of formula that I'm describing of white progressives plus communities of color, that wins in a blue place. It doesn't necessarily win in a red place, right? But with the Democratic Party, we can get a lot of big results, but it is hard and it is an uphill battle and it's got to be focused and hard hitting and serious. Got it. Well, and, and so a, a sort of recent example here was the Build Public's Renewable Act, which died a few weeks ago in the New York State Legislature. The bill would have affirmed the New York Power Authority's ability to build publicly owned renewables and set a deadline for closing the state's fossil fuel plants. Uh, the Democrats, who again have a supermajority in the state legislature, killed the bill. They also, of course, killed um, the the ban on gas and new construction statewide that New York Communities for Change was pushing for. Uh, what exactly happened? Why'd they kill it? That is uh, the depressing story from this uh, New York legislative session is once again, the New York state legislature led, like you said, by a supermajority of Democrats, a, a, a Democratic governor did not pass the kind of policies necessary 
to uh, deal with the climate crisis. And those are the two hugest examples. Um, so in both of those cases, the industries that are threatened by those pieces of legislation mobilized very serious campaigns of lobbyists, campaign donors um, uh, targeted at the leadership and the rank and file membership in those legislatures. And we did not bring enough power to overcome that opposition. So, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but what you need to do is fight. And so if you bring enough pressure, you win. And that's how we won at the city level. And next year, we're going to win at the state level. Like, I don't want to be like Joe Namath here, you know, like kind of guaranteeing victory. But <laughs> but it is true. If we come back with a really strong campaign to pass the gas ban next year, we will win. And it is the same thing uh, for every other issue. It's about mobilizing enough pressure. Um, and that is really the only way to do it. There's there's no other shortcut in a, in a democracy. We don't write the kind of checks um, where we can actually just hire the lobbyists, buy the access, promise jobs, fund networks to uh, uh, do super PAC expenditures, do all of those things that take colossal amounts of money. We can't do that. The only thing we've got is people power, but that's a lot. And so on this issue of, of mobilization to wrap up, um, for people listening to this, if they if they want to get involved in the work you're doing in New York or or they're in other places across the country and, and they want to be involved in climate action, you know, what's your advice to them? Um, you should look at the groups in your local area and see if they're reflecting the kind of stuff that I'm talking about here. Are they um, out there in the streets pressing a specific decision maker for a specific result? Join that group. Um, don't try to do this on your own. It's better to do it inside of an existing group or with um, other people. Um, that's how you really can make change um, by linking up with existing organizations and then bringing those kind of multiracial hard hitting campaigns for specific objectives, targeting specific decision makers. Um, and that is a formula that uh, that wins. Great advice. And 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 what if they uh, want to follow you? Where, where can they find you on on Twitter or online? What's what's the best way to do that? Oh, uh, New York Communities for Change is uh, nycommunities.org, um, at nychange. I'm at Pete Sikora one um, And, you know, there's email lists you should sign up for. And there are lots of wonderful organizations nationally. Um, my personal favorite uh, nationally is Food and Water Watch, which just does wonderful work in fighting fossil fuels um, in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and nationally. So they're a fantastic group to get involved with, but there are many, many others as well. And I would urge you to go to a local organization and find those kind of hard-hitting campaigns where activists are getting together to press a specific decision maker for a specific result. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This is really great and such an important topic. I really appreciate it. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium, you get to hear our bonus segment where we discuss the state of European and Latin American politics and election results. Election results that are huge, huge for the climate and for the future of the world. I think absolutely that the current crop of left wing governments are really inflected by the rise of kind of mass consciousness around climate change. And also, maybe a little more specifically, the rise of environmental justice and indigenous movements that contest specific extractive projects. Listeners can subscribe to Lever Time Premium by heading over to levernews.com. When you subscribe, you also get access to all of the Lever's website, our weekly newsletters, and our exclusive live events. And that's all for the criminally low price of just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. 
One last favor. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and write up a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. And make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the reporting our team has been doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. Rock the boat.